This morning's sermon text is two verses from the book of Proverbs. The first is chapter 14, verse 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. And Proverbs 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to sing the praises with God's people. So, such a privilege to be here. And um, we are on sermon number four in the book of Proverbs. You guys have paid your dues and put up with me for the last three weeks, and this is, I promise, the last time I'll bother you, but uh, at least for the near future. Um, This is uh, just a great privilege for me just to preach through um, just a section of this book, and um, and this is, for me, the first time I've ever preached four sermons in a row, so unless I black out or lose consciousness up here or something like that, um, I will do something I've never done before, and that is preach four weeks in a row. So praise the Lord for that. Um, just a, a little bit of a review. We talked a little bit about wisdom and folly. We defined that. We defined what fearing God is and turning away from evil. We looked at the fact that we are living life connected to God in the land of death, which is largely unconnected to God, and trying to find our way and making sense of life as it's lived out in submission to God, our Creator. And then last week we talked about Proverbs 4.23, which says, Guard your heart with all vigilance, because from it flows the springs of life. Life happens from the inside out, not from the outside in. We're not reactors and passive victims of circumstance. We are moral responders to God. Our hearts are actively worshiping God, and we respond in faith to him. And that's the way the book of Proverbs sees us. So I do want to point out, too, that the first three weeks are kind of foundational to the way that we understand the book. And then this week, what we're going to do is start diving into some of the topics that the book of Proverbs addresses. So from here on out, we're just going to deal with some of the various topics, and there are many that the book of Proverbs deals with. And back a while ago, I forget when it was, late last year or January or something like that, we were all kind of charting out what we might want to do and everything. And um, God had been kind of pointing out in my own life the ways in which I was unaware of anger that was residing in my heart. I never really considered myself an angry person, but um, there were some clues that maybe I had anger issues in various ways, and maybe I didn't have a fully biblical understanding of what anger is really all about and the ways that I was succumbing to it and the ways that I was getting wrapped up in it. And, the, and, and because I didn't really wasn't aware of it, I didn't consider myself an angry person, I didn't really have a response for it, at least not biblically. So as I started probing into the topic of anger, God began to, began to show me some things, and I never struggled with anger again. No, just kidding. <laughs> From time to time, I, well... You know, the bottom line is, it's something I think that we all deal with, and hopefully, by God's grace, we'll all begin to see that there are various ways that we are given to sinful anger. And um, hopefully, my goal is um, to help us, to help expose various ways that that might be residing in our hearts, and biblical responses to that, and biblical ways of thinking about it. So that is where 
I hope to go today, so that's why I chose the topic of anger, because it's been something that's been meaningful in my own life. So with that, let me pray for us, and we can go on and um, get to work here. And uh, Proverbs 14.29 is one of the passages we'll be really looking at. Father God, thank you that you put your son forward to stand in the place of your wrath and to drink the cup dry. And we thank you, Lord God, that we can have your word that speaks to us, and your word speaks to all aspects and all manners of life. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves to figure this thing out, but you have spoken, Lord. You have revealed. And we just pray now that you would show up in power, show up in grace, Lord God, show up in mercy. And we just pray that you would help us to rejoice in what we have in our fellowship with you through Christ Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. So I want to paint a little bit of a scenario for you all to start off. Imagine... There are two men, and they're hard at work, on the job, and they don't particularly like each other. They have a little bit of a past, so that adds a little bit of the maybe tension between the two of them. And on one, of, on one occasion, they're at work, they're on the job. In a moment of passion, perhaps, one of the men sees the other one with his back turned to him, and he sees it as an opportunity, so he runs as fast as he possibly can at him, And he mauls him over like a bear robbed of her cubs and slams him down to the ground with all of his might as hard as he possibly can. And he gets up and kind of walks away. And the man on the ground doesn't get up. In fact, he's injured. He's taken to the hospital. It seems as if uh, he won't be able to return to work for at least a couple of weeks because he has some, some sustainable injuries. How do we judge that? How do we perceive what just happened? How do we make a, a, a judgment, whether positively or negatively? How do we respond to that situation in appropriate ways? Now let me ask you another question. Does it change anything if I tell you guys that the working environment was an NFL football game? And it was a linebacker who got off the edge and the quarterback had his back turned to him and he sacked him. By the way, for those of you who don't know football, a sack is when somebody tackles the quarterback. And the quarterback is the guy with the ball who throws it. Does that change the way that we perceive the situation? Yes, it does, doesn't it? What if the two men were surgeons and they were performing surgery and one of them gets them? One is right and one is wrong, right? In the football game, there's no consequence. In fact, the man is probably praised. He, he gets a sack recorded to his record, and that's good. He'd probably earn more money, right? But in the other context, completely out of bounds. So the way that we, make a perce- uh, uh, the way that we perceive whether or not something is right or wrong, the way that we perceive whether something is evil or not, and the way that we respond to it, ultimately is connected to the rules that govern the context. Would you guys agree with that? So that's what's really important, and that's what I really want you guys to understand about that illustration, that the rules that govern a context is what helps us make a perception that helps us to respond rightly or wrongly. 
All right? So that's what I really want us to understand. Now when we think about anger, Proverbs helps us to understand anger as an outworking of wisdom and folly. Wisdom and folly are both two different contexts that are governed by two different sets of rules. In the world of wisdom, God is the creator, we are the created, and the wise person in the world of wisdom is ruled by God's desires, by God's laws. And therefore, in the world of wisdom, God's rules rules govern. On the other hand, the fool rejects God as creator or ruler. He sees himself as autonomous from God. And the governing rules that the fool works within the parameters of is his own desire. You see, two different contexts, wisdom, folly. In the context of wisdom, God's desires are ruling. God's desires are reigning. God's desires are ultimate. And therefore, the way that things are perceived and the way things are responded to in the world of wisdom as a wise person are going to be very different, you see, than the way things are perceived and the way things are judged right or wrong when God is not ultimate, when myself is ultimate. Do you guys see the, the connection to the illustration? Wisdom and folly matter when we think about how to approach making a perception on whether or not something is right or wrong. And this brings us to anger. Why am I getting at all this? Proverbs fourteen twenty nine. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Another word for wisdom. Right? But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. You see how Proverbs 14 is putting anger in the context of wisdom and folly. It's an outworking of one of those two things. The outworking of our anger has to do with the way we perceive what is evil. The way that we negatively judge it and the way that we actively respond to it with our whole being. This might be a new way of understanding what anger is about, but here is a definition. I took that from a definition by a man named Robert Jones who wrote a book called Uprooting Anger. He says, anger is a whole person active response of negative moral judgment to a perceived evil. We respond with our whole beings in It's an active response. When we judge something as morally wrong, right? And we judge something as morally wrong when we perceive evil. When we perceive something as wrong, we judge it negatively and we respond negatively to it. This is what he's saying anger is. One of the misconceptions about anger is that it's merely an emotional response that's connected to situation and your personality. 
right? Right? Some people say, well, I just have a short fuse. Or I'm a fiery personality, you see. And you were pushing my button, so I exploded. This is a misconception that rejects the fact that Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance. Why? Because your anger flows out of your heart. It's not the situation was right. That definitely contributes to it. Your kids might be pushing your buttons all day long. Yes, I have been there. And I have exploded. But the issue was the way I perceived that to be an offense against me and I responded negatively to it. It's not... You see, anger is not emotional management. It is a matter of perceiving what right and wrong is and our response to it. That's the foundation of it. You see, when we do reduce anger to just emotional responses that are kind of outside of our control, we dehumanize ourselves. How do we dehumanize ourselves? Well, this is how you dehumanize. You're an image bearer of the living God. You're not a pre-programmed robot. And if all the stars align and if all the situations are right, I just pop. Right? We are image bearers of God and we understand ourselves as active worshipers of God who are called to respond to God's truth. We view anger in terms of our growing ability to assess evil, to negatively judge it, and to respond to it with our whole being in appropriate ways. So back to the world of wisdom and folly. Let's unpack that a little bit. Because anger is ultimately about perceiving evil. We need some rules that will govern, right? We need some rules that will govern the way that we understand what's right and wrong. How do we understand what's right and wrong in our world? How do we understand the, the, the negative moral judgments that we're going to make that will lead to our response? Well, there's the world of the wise that's ruled by God, and there's the world of the fool that's ruled by your desires. In the world of the wise, the governing rules that we use to perceive and judge and respond to evil are God's desires. Thus, when we get angry in the world of the wise, we get angry about things that God gets angry about. This is another misconception when we talk about the topic of anger, right? That it's only sinful. It's not only sinful. There is righteous anger. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. It is possible to be angry and still be righteous. Why? Because God is angry at sin. 
There's three categories of anger. Number one, divine, righteous anger. God's rightful anger at sin. That's category number one. Category number two, human righteous anger. There's righteous human anger. And this is closely connected to God's divine righteous anger. We are only righteously angry when our wills and our desires are aligned with God's. And our anger then is an outworking of God's anger. You see, as Christians, we should be angry at injustice. That should anger us. We should be angry that little children are torn from limb to limb. We should be angry at that. We should be angry at human trafficking. If you're not angry about those things, you have an anger issue. That you're not angry. Because God is angry at that sort of thing. And you see, when we have righteous anger that flows from God's desires, then anger is a good thing. It motivates us to accomplish God's purposes. It activates us to get involved at Abba Crisis Pregnancy Center. Right, because there's a holy, righteous anger that rises up within us. It's a good anger because it flows from God. Sinful anger, well, there's one more last thing I want to say about righteous anger from God. God perceives evil perfectly. The reason why God is perfectly, righteously angry is because he sees with perfect clarity the line that needs to be drawn between right and wrong. He never misperceives something that is evil that actually isn't evil. We do. We treat things that are not evil as evil. You have transgressed my comfort zone. Now you will pay. We consider that to be an evil offense. It's not. So God has perfect sight into what is Evil in what is not. And he responds perfectly to it. Sinful anger, sinful human anger, and this is what we're going to spend a a majority of our time looking at, is an outworking of folly, you see. Why? Because the governing rules of the fool is my own desire instead of God's desire. He's ultimately ruled, the fool is, by your deceived desires. So thus, the things that fools decide are right and wrong, and the things that fools wind up getting angry about in this world are very different than what the wise person who uses God as his moral standard will get angry about. The way that we decide what to get angry about is going to be determined ultimately by wisdom or folly. 
whether or not God is ruling in your world or if you are ruling in your world. And I know most of us here are Christians, so we want God to rule in our world. But this is where we have to draw lines. There are aspects of your world in which God is not actively ruling in your heart. And that's where we're prone to unrighteous, sinful anger. James 4, 2, and 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Where do anger outbursts come from? What's this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have. So you get angry and you, get, and you murder. That's what it says. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. This is the outworking of folly. When your desires become your ruling, governing law, and then those are crossed, murder, fighting, quarreling, anger, sinful anger. Proverbs teaches us that the consequences of anger are broken relationships, ultimately. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 21, 9, it is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. So the modern-day sage reworded this and said, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Right? They got it right. Quarrelsome, anger, this divides. Proverbs twenty nine twenty two. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. So James sees it this way. Proverbs sees it this way, that anger destroys relationships because it sees people responding to their own rules, not God's rules, and this wreaks havoc among our members. Anger in the book of Proverbs is the outworking of wisdom and folly. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Now, let's talk a little bit about the deployment of our sinful anger. All right? Another common misconception about anger is that anger is only explosive. How many of you think about it that way? We only tend to think of anger as explosive, what comes out of us visually and obviously. But this is a misconception because if we tend to only think of anger as that which is explosive, then we think that, hey, as long as I stuff it, I'm dealing with it rightly. That's not so. Anger is explosive and it is implosive. Anger is both revealed and it is concealed. Right? And both are dishonoring to God and both are equally as destructive. Anger revealed or explosive anger is usually referred to as the word with the word wrath throughout scripture. And the concealed implosive anger is typically referred to as anger. This is explosive or explosive anger that is obvious. It includes active responses to perceived evil, such as yelling, right? Screaming, hitting, violence, slamming things around, cursing, 
If you have a cursing problem, you have an anger problem. Telling someone off, verbal attacks, even sarcasm, can be explosive forms of anger. Those are a little bit more obvious. A little bit more subtle is anger that's implosive or anger that's concealed. These responses include things like clamming up, shutting down. Maybe moodiness or being frustrated, being irritated, being disgusted, glaring, huffing. It could be responses that have the veneer of self-control, like giving somebody the silent treatment. This is an outworking of anger. Or perhaps withholding something that's good from somebody, whether it's warmth or love or kindness, cutting that off. It has the veneer of being under control, but the reality is you've lost control. Your, your anger is actually out of control. It's just an implosive kind of anger, and it's harder to detect. But it's equally as dishonoring to God, and it's equally as destructive. So for some of you, you might be microwaves that get popping mad. And some of you might be crockpots that hold grudges and cook inside. Your anger might just cook inside your heart. And this causes bitterness, this causes division, this causes communication to shut down, and it can be very destructive. Ken Sandy, he's the author of The Peacemaker. He uh, has this book called The Peacemaker for Families. He offers this helpful progression that, gives, uh, that kind of illustrates this dynamic of anger. It starts with I desire. And this could be a good desire. Like, I want a clean house. Oh boy, now I'm uh, hitting some nerves here. I want a clean house. That's a good desire, isn't it? Where it becomes a problematic issue is when this becomes a ruling desire. So it goes from I desire to I demand. And when I demand something, then I judge. And then I punish. I desire, I demand, I judge, I punish. That's the progression. When something becomes a demand, this is law. I'm ruled now as a fool by my own desires. This is not just something I want. This is something that must happen. We must have a clean house. And then on that basis, we pronounce judgment when it doesn't happen or anybody that's getting in the way of that happening. And then... I will punish. Whether it's implosive or explosive anger, I want dinner hot and ready to go on the table when I walk through the door. I will punish. Why? Because it's become a demand. And anger is a form, whether implosive or explosive, of actually punishing and making sure to see that that happens. So anger in the Bible is a whole person judgment 
that we make against a perceived wrong. We react negatively in our mind, in our emotions, and will against what we conclude to be evil or unfair. Anger is a function of our judgment. We perceive something or someone to be wrong, and we respond accordingly with our whole being. Anger is about perception. Anger is about making judgment calls and responding with everything we have. Now, I want, to, I want us to see anger as worship. How in the world is this worship? Right? David Paulison says that we are actively worshiping in our hearts and we are responsible before God. Right? Well, in the fool's mentality, there is no God. So how could I be worshiping God? Is this a worshiping heart? When there is no God in place in this context, how can worship happen? Right? Well, here's how it happens. It's called idolatry. The fool rejects God. So what becomes the functional God that he worships, his desires. Throughout scripture and in our world today, we see man-made shrines and carved out images that are put on those shrines and people bow down and worship them. Well, we don't do that. We don't have a man-made shrine. We don't have carved out images that we bow down to and worship. But here's what we do have. We have a heart that acts like an altar. And we have desires that we place on that altar. This is called an idol. It could be a desire for control. Right? It could be a desire for praise. Why don't they say thank you to me? Why don't they acknowledge this? It could be a desire for power. Why don't they listen to me? It could be a a desire for influence. Whatever the desire is, this acts as a functional idol that we place on the altar of our hearts. And those desires begin to rule us to the point that we will yell and scream and hit or implode and give silent treatment so that this desire is met. You see, when this desire becomes a ruling desire, it acts as an idol. And our anger, whether it's implosive or explosive, is actually a form of worship. We don't think about it in terms of worship, but it actually is. When we yell at somebody out of sinful anger, all we're trying to do is get them to make sure that my ruling desire gets met. That's worship. It's false worship, but it is worship. I hope that we see that that way. Anger is designed ultimately to manipulate, to coerce, to threaten people into doing what you want them to do. That's the design of anger. I will make you do what I want you to do. This desire is to the point of ruling me It is a God to me. I will do anything I have to do to appease it. And our anger now becomes an outworking of our sacrifice of worship to this ruling desire. When we get angry with our kids, 
when we smack them around. That's worship, you see. It's false worship. It's idol worship, but it's worship, and it's destructive. Idolatry promises you a lot. It promises you control. It promises you you'll be happy if you have a clean house. But you know what it gives you? Strife, division, satanic division. James 1.19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Of course it doesn't. Because sinful anger isn't designed to produce the righteousness of God. It's designed to meet my wants and desires. Of course it won't produce the righteousness of God. Of course it won't produce God's design and God's intentions in this world. And you know, here's the thing. Here's the real kicker. It it won't even produce what you want in the end. You think it will deliver you something, and it won't. You think it will give you control? It won't. You think it will give you power and influence? It won't. In the end, it will give you strife. It will rob you. So how does worshiping God, how does wisdom lead to worshiping God, and how does this help our anger? Here's an insight that I had that I'm excited to share with you. Proverbs 19.11, it says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. This is amazing. Let me unpack this. When God's desire governs our world, this is wisdom. Then our desires, when God's desires are number one, our desires become number two at best, or three or four. Isn't this amazing? You see, this passage is not calling us to overlook sin. I was always a little bit confused by this passage. It says overlook an offense. It wouldn't call us to overlook sin and call that a glory. You know why? Because sin defames God's glory. That's what sin is. It wrecks glory. So it wouldn't say overlook sin because that's a glory because sin robs God of glory. You can't overlook sin. The Bible is not calling us to overlook sin. We are called to rebuke sin and confront sin. But what is it calling us to do? It's calling us to overlook an offense, right? The passage is referring to overlooking offenses against our desires. And when, our, when God's desire is ruling upon our hearts, this is wisdom, our desires become secondary And when we come home and the house is a mess and dinner's not on the table, it's okay. I can overlook that. Why? Because God's desires is what's really controlling me. God doesn't call this a sin. I don't need to either. I can overlook this. This is a glory, you see. In the world of the wise, God's desires governs us. And now we have a drastically different way of judging what is right and wrong, what is evil and what is not, right? God rules in our world, and a messy house or an uncooked dinner, whatever it might be, is an offense perhaps, but it's a puny small offense that can be overlooked, and this brings glory to God because we say, When we overlook offenses like this, we say, you know what, my issues are secondary, my desires are secondary. God's desires is what ultimately matters. This is worship. This is a glory to God. 
And this is how God sets us free. This is how wisdom puts us on the right path to slaying anger and exalting God and being free from our tyranny of making sure that all my desires get met. God protects relationships. Instead of coming home and exploding in anger and causing division, we say, let us rejoice in God. He rules, he reigns, we'll overlook this offense. Now, which way is anger directed? I want to talk a little bit about this too. Obviously, anger is directed at others, but it's also um, directed at ourselves. And then it's also directed at God. How in the world might anger be directed at ourselves? And I wish I could unpack this a little bit more. I'm not going to because of time. But it is directed at ourselves. And here's the, here's the way it can be directed at ourselves sinfully. We have a ruling desire, and sometimes we see ourselves as the thing or as the one that keeps us from getting that desire. It's possible, you see, that you say, I have this inability, I have this experience, whatever it might be. And I see that I, in a certain way, am standing in the way of reaching my desire that I want so badly, so I direct sinful anger inwardly towards myself. And this can be debilitating, this can be paralyzing. And I would, I would just encourage us to consider that for your, uh, as you think about anger and maybe the patterns that you might have. This is destructive, and it's ungodly, and it's unbiblical. And in some way, let's talk a little bit more about this, anger directed at God. This is especially true for Christians who believe that God can do all things, right? That God is sovereign, God is over everything. And I tend to think that anger will eventually, if not ultimately, find its way to be directed at God, either solely or in addition to anger at self or others. You see, when we, th- when we view God as sovereign over all creation, we can start asking questions like this. Why did you let that happen to me, God? Why? Why did you put me in this situation? Why did you not prevent me from making that decision that went so badly? These are issues that we encounter and cause us to doubt the goodness of God. I don't know if you've ever been at that place before. But you can be deceived into thinking that your wants or needs, perhaps you think that I really needed this kind of childhood, or I really needed this kind of situation, or I really wanted, or I really needed this, whatever it might be. And God, you withheld that from me. And you can be deceived into thinking that those wants or needs is something other than what we got, and God is now not good because he didn't give that to you, or he did give you something that you didn't want. We might come to the conclusion and judge that God is wrong. God has committed an offense against me. And now we act out against him, and we might be holding to his sinful anger. Perhaps we might use words like hurt, We might use words like frustration. We might use words like troubled. But maybe really deep down there, we're harboring sinful anger that's unresolved. I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying that could be the case. 
Sometimes hurt isn't hurt. Sometimes it's, God, you have wronged me, and I'm angry at you. Or this person has wronged me, and I'm angry. And it's stewing. And you might think, I'm hurt, but really, I'm angry. In this case, we have to repent. That's the response. Repentance. And acknowledge the ways that we are clinging to a lie. You see, last week we talked about the dynamics of the fall. Starts with deception. And deception leads to doubt. What was Satan trying to get Adam and Eve to do in the garden? They're trying to, he's trying to get them to doubt the goodness of God, is he not? There is another way besides God's way. Is God really good? You might be tempted. Is God really good in this area of my life? How could he let this happen? Repentance looks like this. It means saying, I've been deceived. I've doubted your goodness, O oh God. I've believed the lie that you don't care for me or, God, you are against me. And in worship, we have to replace that lie with a truth, right? And cling to the truth and start to see that God is working all things together for good to those whom he loves. And in addition to that, begin to see that everything that you think didn't go your way or everything that you think God is wrong about, that he might actually be using that to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We replace the lie that we are believing and clinging to and cling to a truth. God is for me, not against me. God is using this to conform me to the image of Christ. I don't need to respond to him in anger. I can respond to him in trust. You see, God's desire for all of us as believers in Christ is that we become conformed to the image of his son. And this now paves the way. If that's our ruling desire, that gives us eyes to see God is for us. That gives us eyes to see, wow, even though this drastically did not go the way I wanted it to, even though this was a very hurtful, bad situation, he's using it. And I can respond to God now in faith, not in anger. You don't have to stay in the pit of hurt. You can respond to God in faith and cling to him in faith that God is working for you, not against you. So, to close here, how do we respond to anger? I want to give you some practical responses. Proverbs 16.32, pursue wisdom. Run away from folly. Reject folly. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than the one who takes a city. You realize what wisdom is saying here? He's saying, ruling over and getting control of your anger is of utmost importance. It's more important, it is a bigger feat, it's a bigger accomplishment than taking a city. Ruling your heart should be a higher priority and a bigger conquest. You see, in a wartime, taking a city, if you don't take the city, it'll take you. And likewise, if you don't get control of your anger, your anger will control you. Pursue wisdom. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. When we grow in wisdom, God's desires start ruling our desires. They start, he starts shaping our desires, 
and we start becoming slow to anger. Why? Because God is slow to anger. We start seeing life and reality the way that it should rightly be seen. All right. And then I want to point us to the cross. The cross. Understand the cross. You know what's interesting to think? That we can be unrighteously angry at God. Can you imagine that? It happens, but that's the reality. But here's the other reality, the other side of the reality. God was righteously angry at you. And he directed it at Jesus. We have to soak that in. I would contend that perhaps all of our sinful anger problems is a breakdown in understanding the cross. You see, when God was righteously, infinitely, red hot with anger at you, and then Jesus stepped in your place and drank the cup of his wrath dry, that should affect the way that we respond in our world, should it not? Jesus also drank the cup of your sinful angry, uh, anger dry. Let that stew on you. Let that, let that sink deeply into your heart. Now, really, we shouldn't have an ounce of anger left that's unrighteous because Jesus is the one who absorbed the full righteous anger of God that was directed at you. This helps us to understand grace and forgiveness. It makes us slow to anger and powers us towards patience. And then we begin to understand God's patience with us. Imagine how slow God is to anger with you. God is so slow to anger with you. Do you realize I mean, just pick one debilitating sin that you struggle with over and over and over and over and over again. All of you has something that you do all the time, all the time. God is slow, slow to anger with you. Why? Because he poured it all out on Christ. Meditate on the cross. Let that shape the way that you understand yourself and the way you understand God's goodness towards you. See in Jesus how he drank the cup of God's righteous anger dry, and therefore he just emptied us. He just totally, really, if we sit at the cross long enough, it should just completely drain us of unrighteous anger. We have nothing left to be angry about. We see at the cross that God is for us. If he spared his own son for you, He's for you. How much more of a statement could he possibly make than giving his own son for you and pouring out his righteous anger on his son? He is infinitely for you. You have nothing to be angry about. You don't have to doubt for a second that he is in somehow wronging you. Why would God wrong you? Why would God wrongly withhold something from you? Why would God wrongly give you something that you didn't want? He gave you his son and poured out his anger on him. God is for you. Meditate at the cross. Sit at the feet of Jesus. This will dissolve, I think, sinful anger. 
And because Jesus died and rose again, we are free to access the throne of grace. You have fellowship now with God. The Psalms are filled with lamenting. We lament by faith. We don't accuse in anger. You see, you don't have to harbor or stuff your real feelings and emotions before God. Right? But it doesn't mean that we come to God in anger and vent our, oh, you did this, you did that. No, but we can lament in faith. We can say, God, why did you withhold that from me? I'm tempted to be angry at you, and I know, God, that you're not angry with me, or I know that you're not wronging me in any way, but I'm tempted to think that, God. Do you pour out your heart before God and lament of faith? Do you lament in faith? Do you pour out what you're really feeling and tempted to think before God? You have that freedom because Christ tore the veil and we have access into his throne room. So I would encourage you to do that. Don't accuse God of doing wrong, but go to him with your concerns. And put off and put on. Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Put off, put away. And last week, we learned, and we, I've, I emphasized, it's not enough just to put off. It's not enough just to turn away. You have to put on. You have to run away, but run into. Run away from evil. Run into God. Colossians 3.12, then. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if any of you has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Identify, where do you get angry? Identify, where are you stewing? Put that off, and then identify by prayer, and maybe even counsel with other believers, hey, I need help putting on Christ in this area. Draw out, what does it mean to put substitute humility in this area of my life and put off whatever it is? How does it look if I substitute humility or kindness in this area? If you come home and you start batting your kids around, look at that and say, what does it look like to be kind and meek and gentle at that moment? And then do it in faith that God will help you. Do it. You put on humility. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, you put on humility. You humble yourselves. Identify what it looks like. Put off something and then put it on. Identify what it looks like and then do it by, by faith. This could help, especially if you are a hot-tempered person and your tempers flare just like that. Having a pre-designed approach, even a plan, I'm just going to walk away, I'm going to bite my lip, I'm not going to say anything in the heat of the moment. Think about these things. Think about what it looks like to put on Christ in the various responses of anger. May God help us. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
And I just pray, God, that you would help us be our ruling guide, be our ruling master in all areas of our lives so that we can respond rightly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.